Hope Church. You, uh, chapter 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that Jesus gives one of the most powerful um, things ever written. Um, we have it recorded on our word. Uh, Jesus' message um, to his disciples and the multitudes that were there listening uh, to him teach. And so uh, let's go ahead and go again to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll talk about a couple things um, in preparation for our discussion this morning and uh, get into it. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, God. We thank you that you are here for us um, in your great grace and amazing uh, mercy and love that we uh, do not deserve, but we so richly receive uh, through your Son, Jesus. Um, Jesus, we're thankful that you went to the cross on our behalf. As we take that bread and that cup um, later this morning, we remember that that's probably the most powerful uh, thing we'll do all week um, as we remember the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Uh, Lord, Lord Jesus, help us to take you and your teaching seriously, that you would have first place um, in our hearts, um, in our motives, in our decisions, uh, in our way of living. Uh, Lord, we're so easily distracted by all the things in our world, and um, myself included, I just pray, God, that you would help us uh, to be able to focus on you and what you've asked us to do. And that we would live um, in a way that pleases you and gives you glory and honor. Uh, and gives glory and honor to your Father. Um, and so, Jesus, we acknowledge this morning that you are our Savior and King. So please instruct us by the power of your Holy Spirit and your word this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so the beginning of uh, the message that Jesus gives uh, in Matthew chapter 5 he begins um, what's called the we call the Beatitudes, or uh, these statements of "blessed are." Uh, really, it's an idea of you know, joyful are those. Um, and we need to remember that these are not uh, just like segmented things, or one person's pure in heart, another person's a peacemaker, another person is this. No, these are, are things that are supposed to uh, be evident in the character of each disciple of Jesus. And so as we go through that list you know, of being poor in spirit, which is to be humble, uh, to be those who mourn you know, over sin, to be those who are meek, that restrained power, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, and those who are persecuted or willing to be persecuted for the name of Jesus um, and his teachings, like that should be the character of every disciple. And if we have that character, then we will play out the fruit of the Spirit um, in our lives. Uh, the things of love and joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, uh, self-control. Um, those things will match up in our lives. That will be the fruit of our lives. And then Jesus tells us um, that we're to be salt um, and we are to be light. You know, Salt preserves and gives flavor. Uh, light shows the way um, and, and gives a direction, gives illumination to everything. Uh, and then Jesus talked about in verses 17 through 20 of that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. You know, the, the law was, under, was um, in its place of authority until that contract was fulfilled. Um, it's ultimately fulfilled through Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, so that, th- that those who were under the law are now no longer under the law uh, of Moses, but are now under the law of Christ. Um, and the heart of that law that was even given in the Old Testament that we come to through faith um, is summed up, all the law and prophets are summed up with love God, love your neighbor. But because Jesus fulfilled the law, now we're no longer subject to certain consequences of the law. We're no longer subject uh, to certain ceremonial things of the law. Uh, we no longer, for example, have to do animal sacrifices. Thankfully, uh, that's no longer necessary because Jesus was the once and for all, all times sacrifice. Um, and so we are in a, under a different system. Now, as Jesus writes this, this system is still in effect because he hasn't gone to the cross yet. 
And so he says, you know, nothing's going to be, you know, removed uh, from this until all is fulfilled. And so that fulfillment um, is ultimately in Jesus himself. Um, and, but then he wants to talk about some things um, that are both in the Old Testament and things in the culture of his day. And so he's going to give this list of things, and you know, they usually begin with, you know, you've heard it said, or you've heard it said of old. Um, and then he's going to say, but I say to you, and then he has some other things to say. Now, many times, um, you know, this, as this portion of scripture has been largely misunderstood, people kind of take it as these things that Jesus is saying, you know, I, I have this that you've said, of, you know, you've heard of old. I have this to say to you, and then he says some other things, and then he gives another one of these deals. But what's in the middle there, uh, or what comes at the end, it's, it's really these are triads. You've heard it said of old, I say to you, and then this third part is really important. Here are you know, transformative initiatives that you can take to practice this and to live this out. It's not a new law, but he's giving examples of how this plays out that you can you can live in this manner that pleases God. Because so many times people have read the Sermon on the Mount and go, well, this is impossible. I can't live up to this. You know, so what, I don't even know what to do with this and just kind of skip over it. But actually in it, Jesus is telling us exactly how, exactly how he wants us to live. And giving us very practical ways to go about living that sort of life. It's not this like nebulous, way out there sort of ideas. He gives, he's giving his ideal, and then he's giving concrete examples of how to fulfill that. And so the first one that we looked at of those last week um, had to do um, with murder. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, who is ever angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, so he gives his higher standard. Then he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and then remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so that was a very clear Principle, a transformative initiative that people could take to avoid having that hatred in their heart and avoid, you know, ultimately committing a heinous act. Um, but particularly, you know, to avoid having that hatred in the heart, you know, go and make peace. Because if somebody couldn't give their gift until they had made peace, they would be sure to go and make peace because they were obligated, at least attempt to make peace, as much depending on them, because they were obligated to give their gift. You know, they weren't going to stop giving their gift, so that would be something you've got to go and, and make right with someone. So Jesus is getting the, giving them a very clear way and showing an order of importance. You know, and we said how we need to even emphasize this in the church today, like, Hey, if you know you've got a problem with a brother or sister that's unresolved um, and you haven't attempted to make peace yet, we don't want your money until you make peace. I mean, that changes things, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, that, that changes the question. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident most churches don't want to preach that. <laughs> pretty confident most preachers are kind of scared what would happen to the offering if they preached that. But Jesus, this is what Jesus says. It's like, do we take him seriously or not? But the issue there is, well, we know we're supposed to give. Therefore, I've got to go and at least as much as the scripture says, as much as it depends on me, live at peace with all people. I can't let there be this division because I'm the cause of it. Or I'm the one who hasn't attempted to be reconciled with my brother, with my sister. Okay? Because i got to give. I'd be disobedient if I wasn't given. And this kind of forces the issue. He says, he gives another example. Agree with your adversary quickly while you were on the way. Um, and so these are the transformative initiatives Jesus gives that go so much deeper and so much beyond just that instruction not to commit the physical act of murder. Jesus, what Jesus wants for us is for our hearts 
to be in the right place, not just restraining ourselves from physically doing violence, you know, in the sense of a culpable homicide um, or premeditated homicide. So that's, you know, very key. Now let's get into these next ones. In verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off cast it and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So we actually have two there. So let's take the first one, which is, uh, they're, they're obviously very related. But the first one, he says, you know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, I mean, and obviously everybody in his context had heard it said, because you got primarily people, I and mean, you got people in Israel, so even if they were Gentiles, they still knew what the law of Moses said, because it's part of the Ten Commandments. Number eight, do not commit adultery. Um, everybody in the audience would have known that this was you know, the teaching of the law of Moses, do not commit adultery. Then Jesus is going to give his higher standard of do not lust, And then he's going to give practical applications that help people not to lust. Now, so let's um, let's think about this for a minute. So we we know the law said, do not commit adultery, but that's still, that's obviously historically been hard for people to avoid doing. Okay? Uh, Even King David. King David, you know, had a relationship with God. He certainly knew all of the Old Testament law, and yet he committed adultery. So one of the things that makes adultery a particularly grievous sin is because um, it takes what belongs to someone else. So if a man sees a woman, and she's, like David did, and she's married to someone else, and then he goes and sleeps with her. He's taking what does not belong to him, what belongs to another man. He's taking it for himself. That is grievous in nature. Um, and it's also giving yourself, if you're married, committing adultery with someone else, is giving what belongs to someone else, if you're the man, what belongs to your wife and only to her, taking that and then giving that to another person. That is grievous. That is a very terrible thing to do. So how does Jesus want us to avoid committing the physical act of adultery? Well, he wants us to not commit the physical act of adultery by stopping things at the root, which is the heart, which is lust. Because if you're not lusting, you're not going to be committing adultery. You're going to have a pure heart. This is part of Jesus' call that his disciples should have the character of being pure in heart. And so he's teaching them because, you know, many people in in Jesus' time, many of the rabbis would teach, you know, what was in your mind didn't matter as long as you didn't commit the act. What was in your mind and heart didn't matter. You still were innocent if you hadn't actually committed the act. And Jesus is saying, no, you still have sin. You're still guilty by having thought about it. You know, and, and I think here he's talking more than like, a, you know, we're told in the scriptures, take every thought captive. You know, there's a passing thought of seeing a person and having a thought that you shouldn't have and then removing that thought away and saying no to that. And there's a big difference between that and actively engaging that thought and playing out the process, playing out the scenes in your, in your mind and your heart, that is lust, 
One is the first is a temptation. Okay, we haven't entered into sin yet. You have temptation. You say no to the temptation because I think sometimes people feel they misunderstand that, and so they feel like they've sinned every time they've been tempted. And that's not a good place to be in because then you know you've got an unnecessary guilt. But with that thought, take captive, send away, quote the scripture, say a prayer, avert your eyes, move on, move on, is what we're, you know, that's the, what we're supposed to do. But when we allow that, that temptation space to be played out in our mind and heart, then we've entered into what Jesus says is lust and is sinful. So now what are Jesus's transformative principles to avoid this lusting in our hearts? Well, he says here, take out your eyes, take out an eye, take off a hand. Now, let's, let's stop for a second, you know, because we have to understand, um, there's different ways we use, we use language. And different ways language is used throughout the scripture. I mean, just to give one example of a type of description, you know, Jesus says, you know, I am the door. He who, you know, enters in, right? I, you know, enters in by him. Like, he says, I am the door. Now, does Jesus mean he's a physical, literal door? That he's a puerta? You know, a door? No, he doesn't, he doesn't mean that. He means he's the, he's the way in. Uh, so it's something that's an illustration that, but has a real meaning to it. And so now we have to understand Jesus is not, I don't believe, actually asking us to pluck out our eyes and to chop off our hands, but he is asking us to take lust that seriously. He is taking that seriously. I mean, Jesus is well aware that if we took him literally, in a very literal sense, that, you know, the churches would be full of mutilated, mangled bodies and blind people. But the problem is, you can have no limbs, you can have no eyes, and you can still be committing the lust of sin and adultery. You only need your, your mind and your heart for that. So then, the, if you were going to go literally, then the next step would be suicide. So you'd have mass suicide. Well... You, you, I mean, we know Jesus isn't asking for that. Okay, he's, he's not. And he's not asking people to get, commit murder against themselves in order to stop sinning, in order to keep from committing lust. Okay, but what is he telling us? He is telling us that he expects us to be pure in heart, and that we have to take lust very, very seriously. Go back to King David. It's interesting how that whole story, that whole scene of that story begins. It says, and it was the time that kings went out to battle. And David was on his rooftop. So instead of being where he was supposed to be and being with his army and helping to defend his nation against attack, he was chilling on his rooftop. When he goes out on air, and then he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. He inquires about her. He learns that she is married. And he does, he has, okay, so one, he was wrong place, wrong time. He shouldn't have been there. Second, he then has the information that it's not lawful for him to be with this woman or to pursue this any further. He has all the information he needs, and yet he continues on in his sin. So, you know, that is an example there as Jesus is, I think, is teaching us as how seriously we do this. I mean, would you rather remove your hand or your eye or would you rather remove yourself from the situation? So I gave a negative example of someone not removing themselves from the situation. And then we see the death and destruction that ultimately causes. Positive, Joseph, when he has... Seemingly, nothing to lose and everything to gain, from a human perspective, flees from the temptation of Potiphar's wife, leaving his coat behind. 
and gets falsely accused and ends up in prison. But he did the right thing because he ran from the sin. He removed himself from the situation. Would you rather move yourself from the situation or would you rather move your hand or your eye? (laughs) Better to remove yourself from the situation. So today, you know, we live in a sexualized culture. Now, for the Jewish community, there was a there was a modesty that was expected, but there also within the Roman community, where no modesty was expected. Okay, and so you can't just say, "Well, you know, Jesus is asking." It was easier then, and we don't have, you know, they don't. We don't. And, you know, experience the same things. It's a lot harder for us, so we're off the hook. No. We, we can throw that out because the Roman culture was as sensual as it comes. So, what do we, what do, we do? You know, we live in a, in a time where in people who are claiming to be Christians, claiming to be followers of Jesus, we will still to one degree or another, put ourselves in situations where we know we're going to be tempted. And that's a dangerous thing. You know, and, and sometimes it's overtly egregious and obvious. You know, when the Fifty Shades of Grey thing came out and that was a real popular you know, thing, there are many, many people who claim the name of Jesus who justified... Watching, reading the book or watching the movie. Well, that is so beyond the line. We shouldn't, you know, I should not have to. Just should not have to say, that's over the line. That's too far. Like there's, no matter who you are, there's no way you can, you know, no. And and people, well, did you read it? Or did you watch it? It's like, listen, people. Hold on. I don't have to light myself on fire to tell you that's a bad idea. I don't have to do drugs to say it's a bad idea to do drugs. You can, you can know the effects of that sort of thing. Sort of thing. But, you know, we're, we live in a really weird and odd culture. A, a culture that will glorify anything sexual and will even pro- promote, in one way or another, sexual violence. And then we'll be horrified when it happens. Wait, horrified about what we're promoting all the time? You know, let's think about the logic of that. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful. You know, and I'm not trying to be your, your TV remote police. I don't want you to be mine or whatever. But... You know, we do need to ask ourselves the questions that I believe Jesus is getting us to ask here. And the questions are, if this causes bad thoughts in my mind, if this tempts me to lust, then therefore should I willingly be putting myself in the situation? Or should I be removing myself from the situation? Let me just, you know, because I don't want to sit here and say, well, this show, that show, or whatever. You know, that's not, my, that's, that's not my job. But my job is to say, you have to ask the question in your own heart and mind before the Lord, what encourages me towards a pure, pure heart and what discourages that pure heart? And then strive to make your decisions accordingly, as I'm also responsible, you know, to do. You know, so for one person, they can't watch a football game because of the shots of the cheerleaders, you know, between plays. And for another person, that might not be an issue, okay? But caution is warranted. And on all of these issues, I think the examples that we see throughout Scripture and throughout even you know, what we know has happened in our own families, old communities, that better to be a little more on the cautious side 
than seeing how close we can get to the cliff. You know, better to be a little more on the cautious side. What did Job say? He said in Job 31, 1 through 4, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? Job had that bigger perspective. Job had that bigger perspective of, the, of God's view for all of us, and he, you know, he, he measured those things. And so what the perceived benefit of sin versus the reality in God, he weighed on the scales and said it's better to follow the ways of God. So may God help us, may Jesus help us to be humble and not to be deluded into thinking that we cannot stumble. Because that's really where the enemy gets us on this subject. You'll be okay to see that. You'll be okay to think that. It's not really going to be that big of a deal. It's not really going to affect your life that much. But we need to see it as the Lord sees it. And also understanding that apart from Jesus, we're pretty powerless. That we need him. That apart from him, we can do nothing and we need to abide in him. If we're abiding in him, you see, this is one of the issues with the whole thing. You can't have Jesus um, as king of your heart in that moment and be committing the sin of lust at the same time. can't be committing the lust and be pure in heart at the same time. So lust is opposite of what Jesus wants, expects has a, as a standard of for his disciples. We need to remember that and understand that. Like if we're going to be... Say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus, that there's a, there's a standard, there's an expectation. Now, yes, there's grace and mercy, of course, when we sin, when we fail. But let's, not, let's be careful that in our statements about grace and mercy and God's love, that we don't lower the expectations to where sin is no longer sin. Still, no, still sin, still wrong, still has to be dealt with, and best dealt with by not falling in the first place. That's the best approach. Okay, then verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Tough, tough words from Jesus here. Whenever we talk about divorce, it's a difficult thing because... I mean, most people in the room have been affected by divorce, whether that was a legal divorce or in practical reality a divorce. Like, I mean, you've been affected in one way or another by this, probably by someone in your own family, perhaps a parent, um, you know, your own parents, um, perhaps a friend situation, whatever it is, everybody's been affected this world by this this issue. And so what is Jesus teaching here? Well, Moses it was told, you know, in Moses 24, we, um, we have, you know, Jesus quoting here about Moses giving, you know, this way out, a certificate of divorce. Now, we're told, Jesus tells us later, that the reason that Moses did that is because of the hardness of the people's hearts, because of their sinful hearts, right? So, we know that divorce and hardness of heart go together. You know, from one person or the other, in, you know, you, you don't have a, a divorce where both people have a loving, pure heart towards each other. You know, one heart becomes impure, at least one heart, minimum of one heart, becomes impure and hard towards the other person. Right? So that's a fact. So it's because of the hardness of the hearts that Moses gives this. But then, so that's the deal. We also need to understand the context that the Pharisees at this time, um, many of the lawyers, not all, but many of the lawyers wanted you to be able to, you know, you divorce for, 
for any trivial you know, reason. And usually that reason is motivated by the desire for another. So I'm going to divorce my wife, and I'm going to say it's because I didn't like you know, the meal she prepared last night. But that's really just an excuse because I'd rather be with this other woman over here. So Jesus is um, raising the bar here when he says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Like he's giving a seriousness to this. Like your sin is then you know, causing more sin and more problems and more dysfunction. So stop it is, is how we could summarize what's, what's being said here. Stop that. Stop that mess. Um, so let's look at this, break this down. And what's implied here, because the, you know, all of the other ones in terms of, you know, they're explicit when Jesus gives that transformative initiative. You know, here think clear-cut things you can do. This one's implied. It's pretty Im- clearly implied. You know, be reconciled to your wife. You know, is ultimately what needs to happen here. Don't go and, and, and take your way out to get the certificate of divorce. No, be reconciled to her and have the marriage that you're supposed to have. Like, that's the ideal that Jesus is, is pushing here and, and pursuing. Um, now, he does give this clause um, where he says, except for any reason except sexual you know, immorality. Um, and so basically, that's, you know, it's an understanding, because in the first part, it's all about the men sinning sexually. There's a reality that women can sin sexually as well, and it usually takes two people to sin sexually, you know, in this in this type of way. So, therefore, um, he, he addresses that as, as well. Um, yeah, and, and the, really the one thing he says there about causing her to commit adultery is obviously the woman who's sexually immoral is already committing, you know, adultery. Um, but really what, what is one of his main focus points there is to the husbands, hey, when you do this, you're putting her in a situation by breaking your oath, you're causing her to break hers. You know, I mean, her vows, I should say. You know, her, her wedding vows, her yes, to, yes is yes, and your yes is yes. But when your yes becomes no, and you force her yes to then become no, like now you've created more dysfunction. You've created more problems. We know God clearly from the beginning um, the two shall become one flesh. That God's intention has been that, um, and and that's you know, I think pretty much indisputable, despite the fact of all the other dysfunction you see. You know, even in the Old Testament, you see a lot of dysfunction. You see a lot of you know men marrying multiple, you know, kings marrying multiple, you know, wives, um, and those things happen, but they're not. Um, a you know, they're not applauded or said to do it that way. And you see the consequences of that. You know, we should be able to see all of that and go, well, we know better than to try to do that. Because that just creates a bunch of problems. Um, so let's, you know, men and women marry wisely and then stay committed to that one individual till death do you part. A natural going away of your marriage. should also remember, you can, I know some people don't like to hear this, but marriage is not an eternal state. You are married here on this earth. Now, I think my wife and I will, you know, that we're wife and I here, there were, you know, family of God's brothers, you know, sister in Christ will know each other, We'll know that we were married. We'll know. All, I think we'll know all of that stuff. I don't want to speculate too much, but yes, yeah, certainly I think we'll know all of those things. But we're not going to be husband and wife then. I know that sometimes it's going to be like devastating for people, I and mean, you're going to have to take it up with God. If, if that devastates you, you're just going to have to talk about that with Jesus, because Jesus says, you know, in heaven you're not married nor given in marriage. It's just like it's just not. It's just not that way. Sorry, you know, that's yeah. Not how it is. So there you go. 
Man, that's some, some, some of you are like, also, that's a Debbie Downer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's this, and that's the question that Jesus was asked. Jesus was asked that very question. This man, you know, um, you know, who's, yeah, that whole, that's a very exact situation. Person married to multiple other people on this earth because uh, one spouse has kept dying, which also makes you kind of suspicious, suspicious. <laughs> in those stories. In those stories, you might want to. You know, if the person says, hey, I've been married four times and all my previous spouses are not alive anymore, you might back away slowly and <laughs> pursue other options. <laughs> Just, <laughs> all right. Just say it. Okay, so we have the hardest of the heart there. I think that's good on that, on that subject. And we certainly don't want to be insensitive to people, you know, parents divorced or... You know, you know, many times, uh, you know, things have, things have happened and we can't undo, you know, the past. And there is grace, there is forgiveness, there is restoration, you know, healing moving forward um, in the family of God. And we need to remember that. At the same time, we, because people have experienced certain pains doesn't mean that we then lower the standard and expectations for everyone else moving forward. And I'm afraid this is what the church has done in large part on this subject, because you know m- many people in the audience have experienced divorce or have been directly affected divorce with parents, then it's like we want to lessen what Jesus has said on this, which is the opposite, actually, of what we need to do, because we know all the pain and suffering that has been caused by a culture of divorce. And so we need to set clearly Jesus' expectation till death do you part. And to reconcile and to pursue that, you know, and to have that as the expectation going in. Don't marry a person unless you anticipate doing all of the hard work necessary to maintain this for 50 plus years. Don't marry the person unless you're up for that. And it's hard work. When people say, hey, this people, these people have a great marriage. They have great, if they have a great marriage, they have a great marriage because they have had hard conversations. Because they have cried together and prayed together. And they have worked hard to have that. Now you're going to find the one in a thousand it's like we just 50 years, we haven't really, we've barely even raised a voice, voice at one time, raised a voice. You know, you, I mean, for most of us, not going to be your experience. Just not going to be your experience, right? Therefore, it takes hard work. You know? I guess if two passive, perfectly passive people marry each other, you know, good things could happen. I don't know. But just it takes hard work. It takes hard work. And be willing to do that. So this flows right into the next part. We're finished with this, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that was said of those old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by Heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by earth, for it is footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So you have the old standard, don't swear falsely, but perform your oaths to the Lord. Leviticus 19.12, Zechariah 5.4. But then Jesus' higher standard, what he expects of his disciples and his kingdom, is that we would not swear at all. Why? What what, what are you going to swear by? What can you swear by heaven? Well, that's God's throne. Do you have authority over God's throne? No. Nor by earth. Why not? Because that's God's footstool. Do you have God's authority over his footstool? No. Nor by Jerusalem. Why not? Because do you have authority as the king over it? Ultimately, the Messiah, Jesus himself. No, you don't. 
you shouldn't even swear by your head, he says, because you cannot make one hair white or black. He's not talking about gray away. He's not talking about some dye product. I mean, like you can change the appearance, but the, the root like, of the issue, you can cover up the reality, but you can't change the reality. All right? So he says, but let your yes be yes. And your no, no. So this is his transformative initiative. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. For, and then he says something really interesting here. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Why is that? Because when people are swearing by something greater than themselves, it's a, a tactic for man, manipulation of certain, you know, to get the other person to think, well, certainly he or she can't be lying to me now because he just sweared on Papa's grave. Well, now he's certainly telling me the truth, right? I mean, it's a tactic for manipulation. And Jesus says, don't do that. And there's also a problem if you are forced to use those sort of tactics. What does that say about your character? If you have to tell other people, no, I, I know I didn't do it that time, but I swear to you by such and such, I'll do it this time. What does that say about your, your, your character? You know, it's a yes be yes and a no be no. If you're going to do something, if you say you're going to do something, do it. And if you're not going to do it, just say, I'm not going to do it. But be truthful about it. And when we make a mistake, we just need to say, I said I would do that and I didn't. I failed. I'm sorry. I apologize. As opposed to, you know, I'm prone to it. I think we're all prone to make excuses of why I didn't do X that I said I would do. Well, don't make an excuse. Just say, I did not do it. It's life's a lot simpler this way. And when we stop trying to, we don't want to manipulate others and we don't want to create environments of manipulation. Because what happens in a culture where everybody is going at each other with, I promise, I this, I that, and it's hard to take anybody's word for anything. Hence why we have to have everything in writing. Because when people say yes, they don't necessarily mean yes. And when they say no, they don't necessarily mean no. So we need to document it all in our contracts. But if people were truthful, we wouldn't have this problem. Now, for those who claim to be followers of Jesus, our testimony and our reputation is at stake when we say yes and when we say no. And there should be no question, you know, in certain times and certain places it's been this way and it needs to be this way again, that if somebody is a follower of Jesus, people outside of that community, people that are not followers of Jesus, would at least say, well, I know person X, your name, said they would do it. And because they're a follower of Jesus, I know that they will. It really should be that simple. That there's never a question about that. They're, they're a follower of Jesus, and if they said they're going to do it, then they're going to do it. That that goes with the character expectation. And so we need to be you know, pretty clear on that, whether it's myself or anybody else, if we say we're going to do something and we don't follow through on it, that we call each other out on that so we create an environment of yes is yes and no is no. For the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because what does tremendous damage to the name of Jesus is when somebody says, I'm a Christian, and then they don't do what they say they're going to do. When they break the contract. Now, this also goes hand in hand with what Jesus talked about. Like, you said yes to this person when you said you'd marry him. Now, follow through on that obligation. Like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Follow through on it. You've made, you have committed yourself. But in all things, of, it goes beyond that. All things of life. You know, we need to be, those of us who are parents need to be careful of that with our children. When we say, yes, you can do this, 
It means you can do it. And when we say, no, you can't do this, it means, no, you can't. And then there are consequences. A lot of times we go, no, you can't, then we do it. And because we don't want to deal with all the hassle, guilty, right here, guilty. If we don't deal with all the hassle, then we go, well, if you do it again. Then there's going to be a, you know, we keep moving the consequence line down the street because we don't have, want to have to deal with the inevitable um, crying and all of that stuff. Yes. Okay. But in the church, in the community, at your work, I mean, it's just a question. At your work, at your work are you known as a person who your yes is yes and your no is no? In your volunteer activities in the community, are you known as a person where your yes is yes and your no is no? You know, whatever it is, you know, we need to be able to affirmatively answer that. And if we can't, then we need to make some changes in our lives. We need to make some changes in our lives because when we say, hey, I'm going to be there, we need to, you know, I mean, of course things happen, but that, you know, the expectation was if I said I was going to be there, that if I'm not there, then somebody's giving me a call like, are you okay? Why? Because you're always where you say you will be. No questions. So if you're not there, then that means something must have happened that's significant, not little, but significant. So we want to be consistent in our testimony. Our reputation on our yes and yes and no no should be rock solid, no question. And so may Jesus help us to keep our word. Uh, it's vital you know, for our testimony in the community. And so we see on all these things, again, you, know, you look at these and you think, okay, man, don't call somebody a fool. Don't, um, you know, so don't look down at people. Don't lust. Keep your word. And, and, you know, and you start, as you start to break it down with what Jesus is teaching on practically how to do it, you realize, wait, this isn't some like pie in the sky, way out there, nobody can meet these standards sort of thing. But no, this is stuff that I can put into practice every day. And I might not be perfect ever, and I might not be perfect today, but I can work towards being more like Jesus simply by obeying the methods that he's instructed me to employ. Simply by following Jesus' ways and his examples, you know, day by day, I can actually become more like Jesus. That's the heart of it. To build our lives on Jesus and his teachings means to strive. Like, you know, the rest of the day, when you wake up in the morning, Jesus, help me to be obedient to you. You take your time, you know, in, in the word. And then when you face these different situations that come about, because you're probably going to be faced this week with a situation where you're tempted to lust. You're going to be faced this week when you're tempted to have a hatred towards another human being. You're going to face a temptation to try to manipulate a situation. You're going to face a temptation to not follow through on what you said. And so there's, with each of those comes an opportunity to employ the character of Jesus and to become more like him. With each of those. And so that's where we have to do the work. To put those in and also to take the time to evaluate ourselves. To evaluate ourselves and say, how did I do today on these things where Jesus is trying to form my character and to grow? But I'm afraid for so many of us, we're so bombarded and we allow ourselves to be bombarded that we have a screen or work or task in front of us from when we wake up in the morning until we go to bed at night, that we lose out on that opportunity and that time for reflection. So we're not taking the time to reflect on what we experienced and how we handled those situations, unless it's big. If it's big, we'll do it, because we're kind of then like, oh, this is in my face. But on the little things throughout the day, to take that time to reflect and say, how did I do in those situations? To the, you know, and did I reflect the character that Jesus expects of me? 
you know, and it's hard to do that, myself guilty as one, when, you know, you're here, and then you go here, and go here to sleep. For those listening on audio, that was all about looking at your cell phone before you sleep. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, take the time to reflect and to do that. Let's pray, and may God help us to live out these principles. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thankful, we're thankful for the necessary conviction that your word gives us. But Lord, we don't want to just stay in that place of guilt. We want to be, and you want us to be, so thankfully, Lord, free from sin and from guilt, from the consequences, and even the earthly consequences, God, that you want us to model that character that we've been given by your son Jesus, that we'd be more like your son Jesus. And so as we take that bread and that cup this morning, I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would examine our hearts, that you would reveal the good and the bad, what needs to change in us, and that you would help us to be people who are striving to have that character that you are pleased with, God. Um, to understand that your evaluation at the end of the day is what really counts. And so, Lord, in each encounter, we would remember that ultimately you are the one who evaluates us. Thankful that you do that in grace, but, Lord, you also do that in truth. And so, Lord, before we take that bread and the cup, please examine our hearts. And we give you thanks as we take that bread and the cup, knowing that your son Jesus ultimately paid the consequences of my failure to meet your standards. And so with thankful hearts of gratitude, we take it. We give you praise and worship and everything you are due, dear Jesus. We honor your name and lift you on high. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit and empower us today for your glory and honor. In your name, Jesus, we ask it.